Welcome, one and all, to Boss Science, a podcast where I interview wicked smart scientists to learn all about the latest and greatest scientific research going on in Boston. I'm your host, the lovely Grace Ingalls, and today's episode is part one of Boss Science's first ever two-part episode. These interviews were so jam-packed with awesome science that I had to split it up into two episodes to give each topic the attention it really deserves. In today's episode, we're going to be learning about how the best things in life really do come in small packages, especially when it comes to the field of nanotechnology. With the help of hardcore nano nerd, Mr. David Medina, we're going to learn about some of the amazing research done at the Webster Nanomedicine Lab. This wicked smart scientist is working to make nanotechnology green by finding all sorts of natural and renewable techniques to make nanoparticles. Using things like fruit juice, milk, and even bacteria cells, these scientists have been able to make some absolutely amazing nanoparticles that can do some wild things, like stop infections, deliver drugs, and even kill cancer cells. So, are you guys ready to learn about some boss-ass science? Welcome to the show. Raise of hands. Who's heard of the term nanotechnology before? I don't even need to see you right now, but I can bet you have your hand up. Okay, put your hand back down. You look ridiculous. Nowadays, everyone has heard of nanotechnology. It's a hot topic in the field of science. But not everyone really knows what the term nanotechnology actually means. Allow me to break it down for you. So, the word nanotechnology as defined by the National Science and Technology Council, is the understanding and control of matter at the dimensions between 1 to 100 nanometers. In science, the prefix nano means one billionth, so one nanometer is one billionth of a meter. Yeah, you heard that right. One single meter is made up of one billion nanometers. That is the number one followed by nine zeros after it. How do you even wrap your head around something that small? Well, let's take those dimensions and scale it up to something that we can actually understand. On a comparative scale, if the diameter of a marble was one nanometer, then one meter would be about the size of the diameter of Earth. That is disgustingly tiny. Like, it hurts my brain to think about how tiny a single nanometer is. If your brain doesn't hurt thinking about this, let me see if I can help. Or hurt, I guess. Let's start large. Us, as humans, are on the macro scale. On average, slightly under 2 meters tall. Or, if you're Danny DeVito, 1.5 meters tall. Sorry, Danny. With our eyes, our sad, pathetic human eyes, we can focus down to the scale of around 1 centimeter to 1 millimeter. For example, a single strand of human hair is about one-tenth of a centimeter in width, or 100,000 nanometers. If we go smaller than this, we enter the micro scale, and for this, we need to use, surprise, surprise, a microscope. Using this, we can visualize the cells that make up our body, like red blood cells. A single one of these cells is about 7 micrometers wide, or 7,000 nanometers. But we need to go even smaller than that to get down to the nano scale. And to view objects at this size, we can't use a regular optical microscope. 
To misquote the movie Jaws, we're going to need a bigger scope. Specifically, we need what's called a scanning electron microscope, or SEM for short. These fancy-ass microscopes are about as large as a medium-sized fridge and will cost you around a million dollars to get, but they are actually capable of viewing the nanoscale. Using an SEM, we can view things like viruses, which can be between 50 to 300 nanometers in size. Want to go even smaller? How about a single strand of human DNA, which is 2.5 nanometers in diameter? That's the size of the materials we're working with. Now that is mind-blowing. And what's even crazier to me is that humans have been using nanotechnology for thousands of years, even if we haven't always known it. Back in the 4th century, artists used suspended gold and silver nanoparticles to create what is called dichroic glass. This allows the glass to have an opaque green color when lit from the outside, but turns a translucent red color when light shines through the inside. I looked up a photo of this, and it is bananas cool. And now I want a whole chandelier just made of dichroic glass. Later on in the 13th century, blacksmiths were able to create what's known as Damascus steel blades, which contain carbon nanotubes and nanowires, giving it ultra strength and resilience, as well as a really unique color pattern. Damascus steel is famous for its beautiful wavy design of dark and light gray colors, blended in this almost hypnotic pattern. It's kind of like someone tie-dyed the steel, which honestly is such an aesthetic and I love it. But it wasn't until the 1950s that scientists actually became interested in studying nanotechnology, which has been largely attributed to a speech made by famous physicist Richard Feynman at a conference at the California Institute of Technology. This lecture discussed the advantages and the immense importance of advancing the technology and engineering at the nanoscale. This talk was titled, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom, and if you've ever taken any sort of nanotechnology course, they probably made you read it. But why read when you can listen to podcasts about it, right? From this point on, the focus on research in nanotechnology exploded, and today it's one of the fastest growing fields of science in both academia and industry. In fact, nanotechnology has become such a booming industry that chances are you own or use something that involves nanoscience. You've got nanoscale quantum dots in your ultra-high-definition TV displays. The UV protective elements in your sunscreen comes from zinc or titanium nanoparticles. Carbon nanotubes have made stronger and more durable materials for things like bikes and tennis rackets. Even the bottle of Coke you're drinking has nanoclays in the plastic, to help it retain carbonation and pressure while it sits on the shelf. We are surrounded by nanotechnology, even if we don't know it. But for me, one of the most interesting and exciting areas of nanotechnology is the field of nanomedicine. This branch of medicine applies the knowledge and tools of nanotechnology to prevent and treat disease. There are all different kinds of ways that nanomedicine can involve the use of nanoscale materials, from diagnosing diseases to delivery of drugs, and even the possibility of growing human organs for transplants. One group of researchers have a particularly interesting focus in the field of nanomedicine. Today, we head over to Northeastern University to talk with the Webster Nanomedicine Lab. This group specializes in creating nanostructures that are inspired by structures found in nature, as well as using green nanochemistry to create amazing nanoparticles from simple, everyday objects like fruit, milk, even living cells. 
What? That's crazy. I needed to know more. So, just up the road from Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, and nestled right next to the beautiful Back Bay Fens Gardens, I sit down with PhD student David Medina to learn more about his amazing research. Well, he's sitting in the lab, and I'm sitting at home under a pile of blankets and pretending I'm with him while we chat over a Zoom video call. 2020 is turning out to be an interesting year. Future doctor and current badass, David Medina came here from Spain four years ago to do his favorite thing in the whole world, research. Well, he got his wish, and he's been working in the Webster lab ever since. His focus in the lab is on a topic I've never even heard of before, using bacteria cells to create nanoparticles. And even crazier to me, they show that these nanoparticles are able to target and destroy the same type of bacteria cell which created them. What does it even mean? How does it work? What can they do? David answers all these questions and more. How did you guys come across this phenomenon? How did you discover that you could create nanoparticles using bacteria? So actually, we did not discover this. It was a process that was known from the 1970s, if I remember correctly. They discovered that bacteria could do this, but they didn't use it for anything. When I came here, I decided, let's take these bacteria that can make nanoparticles and let's use them to fight bacteria to see if they can be used as antimicrobials. And what happened is, like, happened in science, it was by mistake. I was really tired one day and I mislabeled a few tubes. And what happened is that we found that some bacteria that were not supposed to do that, they were able to produce nanoparticles. And you can see that just because the media where they grow, it goes from yellow to red. Wow. Happy accident, I guess. And uh, this has become like your focus in the lab, correct? It is. It's half of my time, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Time well spent, I think. What type of cells have you guys shown can produce these nanoparticles? I know that there are bacteria cells you mentioned, but are there specific strains or other types of cells that can produce them? So, so far, we have been only focusing on bacterial cells. So we have been working with around 18 to 20 different strains. And from them, we have discovered around 10 strains that are able to do this that we're not supposed to. So what gives? Why did these bacteria make nanoparticles in the first place? Are they trying to sell them on Etsy? Like, what's the point? So it turns out that bacteria have been making nanoparticles like this for years. We just never really bothered to look into it before. Since the early 1960s, scientists have known that bacteria can take specific types of metal compounds, which is a substance made up of two or more chemical elements bound together, and naturally break it down into their elemental forms. It turns out that bacteria really don't like certain types of chemical compounds in their environment. They're toxic to the cells. I get it. Me too. It's 2020. Time to cut out those toxic relationships. New year, new you. But instead of sending a text saying, maybe we're better off apart, these bacteria decided to take those toxic compounds and literally tear them apart until they can't hurt the cell anymore. Bacteria have absolutely no chill. So the bacteria cells will gobble up all these toxic compounds, mush it around and do their bacteria thing, and pop out these beautiful, non-toxic elemental nanoparticles. So yeah, these nanoparticles are basically bacteria poop. I'll leave you to let that sink in. 
So you said that once you've created these nanoparticles, you found that they were able to target the parent cell and actually destroy them. I was wondering, do all these nanoparticles that are produced by bacteria, do they always have this response where they instinctually go to kill their parent cell or is it only select nanoparticles? With the process that we patented, we are able to extract these nanoparticles. Once we collect them and we test them with a bunch of different bacteria, they show selectivity, as you mentioned, to the parent cells. And we have seen this behavior in all of them. The important thing and the key component here is that we keep them in the same stage like if they were inside the bacteria. And that's why they are selective. Otherwise, they would not. So you can be sure that they're not going to be targeting other cells based on this. Yes, we can, we can tailor that. That's fantastic. And do you guys know the actual mechanism for how these nanoparticles kill the parent cells? So in the way that they kill bacteria, they can do it using three different ways. One is contact, just the nanoparticle lands there close to the bacteria, and they can go inside and they can start doing a mess and they can kill the bacteria. The second way is that employs chemistry and just basically there is something called oxygen species. They are produced and they again cause a mess inside the bacteria. Reactive oxygen species. Why does that term sound so familiar to me? I feel like one of the memories I repressed from my freshman year chemistry class is trying to resurface. I googled it, and sure enough, it's a chemistry term. Reactive oxygen species, or ROS for short, is a natural byproduct of our cells' metabolism of oxygen. We always have some level of ROS production in our body, but when ROS levels increase, it can start to really mess stuff up. ROS can directly damage cell walls, or start messing up really sensitive signaling pathways that our cells need functioning in order to survive. All this together is known as oxidative stress, and it's real bad for our body. Turns out that one of the reasons metal nanoparticles are so good at killing bacteria is because metal ions are super toxic to cells. You see, the normal cell will spend its days maintaining a very precise balance of chemicals and elements, both inside and around the cell, which is called homeostasis. Then these metal nanoparticles show up in like leather jackets and mohawks, and they're ready to mess this homeostasis up. One of the ways they do this is by messing with the cell's redox reactions, another chemistry term I thought was lost to my subconscious. And this can result in an increased production of, would you have guessed it, ROS. That's crazy, am I right? I think I got that right. Ugh. Thank God I'm not being tested on this stuff again. And the third way is metal ion release, because these nanoparticles just release ions as they would do in nature, and that also causes another mess inside the bacteria. So for the nanoparticles produced from bacteria cells, are these nanoparticles able to use all these different methods of killing bacteria cells? Yes, they use the three of them, but the important thing is that we have been working a lot in order to control those mechanisms. But we want to control that, and for instance, in a specific situation, just have one of them, and in another situation, a different one. Because it's important to remember that bacteria always want to defend themselves, so we need to find the best way to kill them, and also to avoid them from learning how to defend themselves. And do you know if there's a 
selected way of those three techniques that you found has been most effective? Or does it depend each bacteria has a particular method that is most effective? So the three methods are really efficient, killing bacteria, but some of them, like let's say gram-negative bacteria, they have this double membrane and basically they need a boost in how you kill them. So it's better in those cases to use uh, the second method that I mentioned to increase the reactive oxygen species. So it really depends on the bacteria you want to target. What is the big difference between these bacteria-produced nanoparticles and traditional synthetic-produced nanoparticles? So the main difference is how they behave with the human body. That at the end is our main target. The problem with synthetic nanoparticles is that you have often to modify them, to change them in order to make them better and to not kill whatever they find inside the body. The main advantage that these nanoparticles have is that they are made by nature. You can imagine them as a final product. You can just take them, put them inside the human body, and they are going to do what they are supposed to do and kill what they are supposed to do. So you don't need to really modify them. And then another important difference is cost effectivity. They are really cheap to produce because you don't need to use many chemicals. You have something that is a bacteria that grows continuously. It really likes to expand and spread. So you have self-sustained source of materials. Oh, that's definitely a huge advantage. Yeah, I, I've worked with nanoparticles before and I, I know how difficult it can be to control the targeting of them. And they ain't cheap, faux show. <laughs> so since I've never even heard of bacteria-produced nanoparticles, I'm not even sure what these would be made of. I know that in general, nanoparticles can be created using a lot of different materials. What would be the materials that these bacteria-producing nanoparticles are made of? Technically, they will make nanoparticles out of anything, just if you find the core of the strains. You can make any material you want out of them, just because they are going to learn how to survive. Because it's something that has been happening from the very beginning of the planet. What happened is that you have a bunch of bacteria growing in a space with something that is supposed to kill them. And they are going to die, but some of them are going to learn that if they want to survive, they have to take care of that problem. So what happens is that they take the problem, and the only way to cope with that is to produce nanoparticles. The nanoparticles are like something that they produce in order to survive. I didn't realize that they were just a byproduct. So what type of nanoparticles have you been able to produce using these bacteria in the lab? So, so far we have tried different novel metals like silver, palladium, platinum, and gold, but we decide to really focus on not so much known materials like selenium and tellurium. We are using these two elements. They are known as chalcogenes. And we are really focused on using these two because they are not really known by the scientific community. Well, at least I have something in common with the scientific community, because I know nothing about those elements also. But I'm here to learn, and apparently so are you, so I looked it up. The chemical elements selenium and tellurium are located in group 16 of the periodic table, and they're part of the Chalcogen family. Chalcogen. Chalcogen? I wish I could say English isn't my first language, but I got no excuse. Anyway, selenium and tellurium are both rare elements found in the Earth's crust in things like rocks, ores, and sediments. These elements have attracted increasing interest in science because of their unique metalloid properties. 
These elements don't really classify as fully metallic, nor do they identify as fully non-metallic. They fall somewhere in the middle. Hey, would you look at that? These elements don't have to adhere to pre-described categories. If only humans could realize that too. The unique chemistry of these metalloid elements enhances their sensitivity to certain chemical stimuli, with a special sensitivity to redox response and the production of ROS. Ah, see what I did there? Brought it all back together again. <sighs> Genius. So would using these unfamiliar materials have an advantage over, say, basic metals like gold or whatnot? Yes, it does. So here's the funny thing. We are trying to develop nanomaterials to avoid bacteria to become resistant to antibiotics, but at the end, bacteria are also becoming resistant to nanoparticles. And after 60, 80 years of people trying silver nanoparticles to kill bacteria, they are showing resistant now. So that's why we are just trying to find different materials to which they don't have any exposure. And the reason why we use selenium is just because they don't have any exposure to them. So now that you actually know what strains of bacteria make what types of nanoparticles, once you've created the nanoparticles and you separated them from the bacteria, how have you guys been able to use them in the lab? In the lab, we saw the antimicrobial potential. We also use them as anti-cancer agents because they are really good killers of cancer cells. They really target in an efficient way, for instance, melanoma. So we're exploring that way as well. And also we found that they can be easily applied in coatings or in bandages. So we are exploring actually with a company that we spin out a few months ago how to use them for antimicrobial bandages in ski bacteria infections. Do you envision that these nanoparticles, maybe with a little bit more modifications or a little bit better understanding, can be used for any other applications in the future? We have explored a few other applications other than just medicine. For instance, we wanted to use them as antimicrobials in the cooling towers of nuclear plants because there is a huge problem there with bacteria. So basically, every place where bacteria can cause a problem, actually, I think that you can apply these nanoparticles. And that's something we're exploring with different departments. But I think that the applications are endless. We just need the time to really understand what is happening. That is one thing that I know is true. With enough time, all things can be understood. Unfortunately, when it comes to certain problems, we don't have time on our side. And when it comes to problems of sustainability, we're in a frenzy to come up with ways to reduce our environmental impact. And as much as I hate to admit it, science isn't always the most sustainable industry. When it comes to nanotechnology, even though the products made are so small, the process can still have some big impacts on the environment. But before you start to spiral and end up in the fetal position on the bathroom floor, wondering if we're all doomed, let me tell you, there are people acting right now to change that. That's why the Green Chemistry Research Division was started at Northeastern University, with a mission to find greener ways to create nanoparticles and research nanotechnology. David Medina, who happens to be the founder and leader of this division, tells me more about the awesome work they're doing. The Green Chemistry is a research division that we created in this lab when I came here to the States, where the whole idea was to use green chemistry, green nanotechnology, so nature, to make nanoparticles that can be done otherwise using chemistry, but in a better way 
for the environment and for society. That was our vision. And this project is part of that mission that we have. Yeah, you've already shown that you're able to use, you know, bacteria to produce these nanoparticles, which has got to be greener than how they're produced synthetically. Have you come up with any other ways to produce these nanoparticles in a in a green way? So, yes, totally. Over these four years that I've been here, we have patented a few of the projects using bacteria, as we just mentioned, human cells as well. Also plants like aloe vera and other plants. And also we really like to use just things that you can easily find in your fridge. For instance, we have a few projects using citrix or milk or other organic stuff just to produce nanoparticles, and they are better than others that can be produced by chemistry in some other ways. Wow. So I could just go into my fridge, grab my milk and send it over and you can make nanoparticles out of it? Yes, that's possible, actually. I'm sorry. What? You can make nanoparticles using groceries? And I've been over here using fruit and milk to make smoothies like an idiot. When I first heard these scientists were able to use fruit juice to make nanoparticles, I thought there was going to be this huge, tedious process before you could get anything of use. Turns out, all you need is a little bit of metallic salt, a microwave, a high-speed centrifuge, and some freshly squeezed fruit from Trader Joe's. Or Whole Foods, if you're fancy. But that's it! The final result is honestly beautiful. The orange synthesized nanoparticles have this spiky, needle-like shape, while the lemon and lime synthesized nanoparticles are the complete opposite, resulting in these perfectly formed nanocubes. I can't believe I've lived my whole life and never knew you could use fruit for science. This brings a whole new meaning to the phrase, When life hands you lemons, make nanoparticles? Maybe I should put that on a t-shirt. I'm assuming that these nanoparticles, based on, you know, what is made to create them, will have different functions. What are some of the examples of the functions that you guys have been able to use all these different nanoparticles for? When you create a nanoparticle using something, you have something that is called a synergy. So whatever is good from the raw material will go together with whatever is good of the nanoparticle, and you will have a combined effect. And one of the latest examples that we saw is, for instance, garlic. When you make nanoparticles with garlic, you have the best of garlic that is, it, it can be used as a natural antibiotic with, for instance, the best of silver nanoparticles that they can easily kill bacteria. So you have a nanoparticle that is really good killing bacteria, but now it's cover with something from the garlic that is making the antibiotic effect even better. And you can see these kind of processes with practically everything that you can find. What do you think is the wildest natural thing that you guys used in the lab to make nanoparticles? I mean, just hearing the word garlic being used to make nanoparticles just blows my mind. But what are some other crazy examples? So we had a student two years ago that he wanted to do nanoparticles with durian. I don't know if you are familiar with that fruit. Do you guys ever look at some type of food and wonder what ever compelled human beings to ever put that in their mouths? The durian fruit is the ultimate example of that. Popular in certain areas of Malaysia, India, and China, the durian fruit looks like a spiky yellow volleyball, which can be between 6 to 12 inches in diameter and weigh up to 7 pounds. 
The fruit's flesh can be eaten raw or cooked, and can be found in many traditional Southeast Asian dishes and candies like ice cream, milkshakes, mooncakes, even cappuccinos. As if the fruit wasn't bizarre enough just from its looks, the Dorian fruit has a notorious odor that isn't all that appetizing. Popular food writer Richard Sterling has described the smell of the Dorian fruit as a blend of turpentine and onions garnished with a gym sock, which is probably my favorite food description ever. Even with the husk of the fruit still intact, you can smell the Dorian fruit from yards away. In fact, the smell is so pungent, it's been banned on the Singapore Rapid Mass Transit. They literally have warning signs up saying things like, no smoking, no weapons, no Dorian fruit. So, if you ever have beef with someone, just start throwing Dorian fruit at them. Nothing says screw you like a spiky, seven-pound ball smelling of rotting meat being hurled at someone's head. Bet they won't be bothering you again after that. It's a fruit that is huge, but when you open it, it smells really, really bad. Like, it's probably the worst thing in the world, but it tastes great. I don't know how. Nature is fantastic, I guess. <laughs> what happened is that he tried to the nanoparticles, and it was probably five days with a stint in the whole lab, and that was really wild. But we got it somehow, and yeah, we have a few projects related to that. Wow. I mean, you got to suffer for science, you know? <laughs> yes, you have to. What are some examples of the projects being worked on in the green chemistry division? So I would say the ones that I mentioned before, mainly bacteria, making nanoparticles, human cells, plants, natural raw materials. We had a few projects using biomolecules like proteins. Then we had a few more in which we wanted to use viruses and fungi to make nanoparticles to target viruses and fungi, respectively. Basically, what we do when any student comes is just do, do like a brainstorming, like, okay, tell me something from nature that we can use. And we use all the ideas. You always have to crowdsource, take all the ideas you can get, see what comes out. Have you guys been able to market and make actual products using any of the techniques that you've developed in the lab? So we create two companies based on technologies that we develop here, but both are pre-seed stage. We need, we need seed funding at this stage, so we are really early stages. So no products so far. We envision, we want to have them there ready one day, soon, hope. So one of them, the first one that we created is called Science Cell Biotechnology. With that, what we use is the technology based on the bacteria to make nanoparticles to target the skin bacterial infection market. And the other one is was born actually a few weeks after the one and it's called Nanolix Incorporated. And what they do is they took three of the technologies that we had in the lab using citric acids, aloe vera, struts, and biocompatible polymer that we use. And they are creating antimicrobial nanocoding. But they are now shifting towards COVID-19 is stuff because of this whole situation. But yes, we really want to take any idea and not just produce a paper or a research or something. We just want to really help people with that. Because if they stay in the lab, they are not going to do much help. Definitely. I highly agree. Not a lot of research labs have that focus. So I appreciate that you guys have that in yours. Awesome. So I saw that you were the founder of the Green Chemistry Division. How did that actually start for you? 
It was in 2018 in fall. I was doing here a master. So I had six months of experience working here. And then when I got my PhD offer, after so much pain, <laughs> it was the moment that I had to decide what I wanted to do over these years. And that was the whole idea. When I came here, no one was working on that. It was my first year as PhD student. So what I did was to take a few of my students and just say, okay, we're going to focus on this. Do you want to be part of this team? And I just wanted to unify the people that I was working with in just one goal. More students came after them. We had more and more projects, all of them involved in the green nanotechnology side of science. And at the end, we had this family. That's what I can call them, actually. And we have had up to 15 students at the same time. So many people have come after this. And it's really more than a division, a team or everything. It's a family of people just with the same vision and mission. It's really nice to work here. That sounds really nice. I love it. So do you envision this division turning into a company, maybe your own company, or do you think this will be something that's going to stay more at Northeastern at the Webster Lab? I want the green chemistry division to be in academia because it's the place where really a lot of people can come by and just give their, their ideas and then they can decide what they want to do. If they want to spin out our company, they just can take one technology and take a piece of that. So what I really wanted to be is like a network, something where people can go, do research about these topics, and then take whatever they want from there, from just experience to company, ideas, or hopefully products in the future. Oh my gosh. My heart hurts. That is so freaking sweet. How wonderful is that? It sounds like David is going to be doing some amazing things while he's at Northeastern, with the green chemistry division being just the start. But now it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show, listener questions. Before meeting with the team at the Webster Nanomedicine Lab, I shared with my listeners, that's you, some info about the amazing research these guys are working on, and gave you a chance to send in your very own questions. And boy, did you guys have plenty of them. And luckily... David has some great answers for you. I think now I'll just do a couple listener questions. So in regards to the nanoparticles produced by bacteria, are you still researching different types of chemical compounds to feed this bacteria and try to get new nanoparticles? Or are you just focused now on using already established formulas and trying to perfect those results? Both. For the sake of science, I'm still continuing doing this, different products, different materials, just to see what really happens. That's the wonder of bacteria. There are so many that you never know. Also, we are focusing on this selenium nanoparticles one that we just mentioned, because to focus is the only way to have this outside of the lab to the market helping people. That's great to know that you guys are still looking at new techniques and new strategies. Always good. So one listener is wondering if these nanoparticles might be used as a strategy for weight loss. Since you mentioned that these nanoparticles can be produced from cells and then target those cells and kill them, would it be possible to, say, get nanoparticles produced from fat cells and then have them turn back around and target those fat cells? You should send me the contact of that listener. That's a really nice idea, actually. <laughs> we didn't think about it. It's not something that we are exploring at the moment, but since they can be combined with many things, to use them for that goal would be something worth to explore. 
Okay, well, the seed is in your mind, and maybe in a few years we'll check back in and we'll have a new instant weight loss on the market. (laughs) One listener said that recent studies show that our gut's microbiome, the bacteria that live in our gut, is believed to play a major role in how happy we are and how much we weigh and what nutrients get absorbed by the bodies. So they were wondering if these nanoparticles can be built to identify and destroy specific bacteria that would either make somebody gain weight or maybe be unhappy. Yes, that's actually one of our main projects here with these nanoparticles. Once you identify the bacteria that is causing problems, you just need to take it outside of the patient. You grow it in a lab, produce the nanoparticles, and then you reintroduce them. And what's going to happen is that they are going to kill the parent cell without harming the rest of the microbiota. Last question. One listener says, since metal is good at conducting electrical signals, could you use these metal nanoparticles to help treat patients with nerve damage or paralysis? Yes, it would be possible just because of property that you mentioned, but I do not know how. We had a project, it was something that is in the air right now, that it was to combine these nanoparticles with metal surfaces to produce development of neurons. That would be a really nice way, but I don't know how that would be implemented, but it's a possibility. I think the word possibly is way better than a no, because that means... Maybe one day we might see a turn from possibly into reality. Only time will tell which way it goes, though. I had such a kick talking with David about all the amazing research he's working on. But it's not really an interview for Boss Science if I don't get to ask a question about Boston itself. I do have one specific question for Boston, since this is a Boston-based podcast I always like to ask. Now that we are in the midst of springtime and unfortunately stuck at home, for most of the day. I was wondering if there's any area specifically in Boston that you would like to go and visit during the spring. I would say I really would love to go again to any of the cafes close to downtown. I do really love the Arboretum, Harvard Arboretum down in JP because I live there. And that's like a really good point to disconnect of the whole noisy city. I would love to go there. I feel you, David. Everyone needs a chance to disconnect from the city life, whether that means going on a walk through the Harvard Arboretum or just squatting in your neighbor's garden and pretending you're somewhere else. Easier said than done, I'm sad to say. I'm also sad to say that we've reached the end of part one of the Nature Meets Nanomedicine two-parter episode. But don't worry, part two isn't far behind. And in the next episode, we'll hear from the head honcho, Professor Thomas Webster himself. With over 30 years of experience in the field of nanomedicine, Professor Webster will tell us some amazing stories, including his work on biologically inspired nanofeature bone implants, futuristic ingestible biosensors, and even how he hopes to create a gold nanoparticle spray that could help to stop the spread of COVID-19. But you'll have to tune in next time if you want to hear more. I want to give a huge thank you to Mr. David Medina for taking the time to talk with me about all the amazing work he's doing. If you want to reach out to him, you can find his contact info and a link to the Webster Nanomedicine Lab website in the show notes below. If you want to see some of the pictures I talked about on the show, like the dichroic glass and the Damascus steel blades, as well as the citrus-made nanoparticles, you can check out the show's Instagram or Twitter at BOS Science, where you'll also get info about upcoming episodes and guests. 
If you want to reach out to me to send me any listener questions, suggest a future topic or scientist for the show, share a video of you throwing a Dorian fruit at your ex's head, or whatever else, you can email me at bosciencepodcast at gmail.com. And finally, before I actually let you go, I want to ask from the very, very bottom of my heart to please, 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 please rate and review the show. Even if you just write four words, like, I don't hate it, or she's weird but funny, it would honestly mean so much to me, and it would help the show so much. Not sure where to submit your review? You can head on over to the website, ratethispodcast.com slash science and follow the short and simple instructions listed to leave your fantastic review. Hooray! You made it to the end! I'm so proud of you. You go, girl. Or boy. Or person. With that being said, I'll see you guys on the next episode of Boss Science, where I talk to wicked smart people about some boss-ass science. Bye! Thank you.